I think as leaders, we have to meet ourselves where we are. And I think it's about this ongoing journey of discovery and not just looking for the easy answer. Sometimes we look for the easy solution and we get stuck. We don't continue to evolve. I think the title of your book is just a great title and the work that you're doing is just great because it's about yeah. an evolution. So it was just exciting to kind of see where the journey's taken you and what corners of the world you've started poking into. My guest today is Glyne Roberts McCabe. Glyne is the founder and president of The Roundtable, a company that helps leaders navigate change, disruption, and growth by building the mindsets and behaviors that matter most. Glyne has over 30 years experience in leadership, business, and coaching, and she combines an evidence-based approach with pragmatism in all of the Roundtable programs. They've been incredibly successful, winning multiple awards for their design and curriculum. Glyne is also the author of two Amazon best-selling books, The Grassroots Leadership Revolution and Did I Really Sign Up for This? Several years ago, I met Glyne. A friend from high school had told me about her programs, and I reached out. I thought it'd be great to get to know a successful business owner in a space that I wanted to be in. Well, through the years, we've stayed in touch. Gline has provided encouragement to me in ways she probably doesn't even realize. And so it only made sense that when I was thinking about having somebody write the foreword for my new book, she was just the perfect fit. You'll hear us in this podcast talk about that process for me, why I invited her to write the foreword, my reaction, her reaction. And we're also going to talk about leadership and how it has evolved over the years and why now is a time that we need to be talking about being trauma-informed as leaders. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Enjoy. Welcome to Evolve, a new era of leadership a podcast for real leaders to join real conversations with business experts, practitioners, thought leaders, and change makers who integrate head, heart, and body in all they do, who commit to compassion and curiosity, who commit to radical self-leadership in their quest to understand others better too. Because the only way to deliver real results is to understand what it takes to lead real human beings. This is a new era of leadership. I'm Carolyn Suara, and this is Evolve, a new era of leadership. Hello, Evolve listeners. It is a big week for me this week as my book is being launched tomorrow. And so it is only fitting that I have a friend and mentor on the show, somebody who helped contribute to this book. Klein Roberts McCabe. Welcome to the show. Oh, it is so great to be here. And I consider you a friend and mentor too. So oh. it's always friend and mentoring happening. Well, there you go. It goes, it goes both ways. And so for those of you who have already purchased the book, maybe you've gone already to purchase, you'll notice that there is a name at the bottom of the book cover. And Glein so kindly agreed to write the foreword to my book. So it's a privilege to share space on a cover with you. And also you wrote a beautiful foreword. And so I thought it would be great to have you on 
to talk about your work, your business, why I wanted to have you write the forward and why you felt this was an important topic. So that's where we're going to go today. How does that sound? Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So I sent you an email several months ago, just dropped into your inbox out of nowhere saying, hey, will you write this forward? What did you think when that dropped in? And then when you saw the manuscript? It's funny because you had the word trauma, right? In the, <laughs> in the in title. The setup of this. And I think if you had dropped me that email two years ago, I would have run for the hills. And I, but I felt like uh, things happen in your life at a time and a reason. And so I think for myself, just was an opportunity for me to think a little bit more about my own experience with the big T word trauma and leadership and the work that I do. And I think just collectively over the last few years since COVID, I know I'm so sick of talking about COVID, but I feel like 2020, 2021 was such a collective experience for all of us. And I think all of us are still unraveling what happened and what it meant. So it was for me, selfishly, probably a little bit of a great opportunity to sink into my own thoughts and feelings and my own journey that I've been on around understanding that aspect of myself and then to read your thoughts because I was just excited to kind of see where the journey's taken you and what you've started what corners of the world you've started poking into right right you know I've had a, a few ups and downs with this book as all authors and I know you've written a few books yourself so you know the roller coaster oh, yeah. of it And I wasn't sure. I was like, oh my gosh, who's going to want to put their name on this? Because, you know, that T word can be edgy and there's a lot of misnomers, myself included, which is why I wrote the book about it, because I had a lot of misunderstandings about it. But given your background, your experience, I thought, okay, Carolyn, if anyone is going to get this and understand where I wanted to take it, it was going to be you because you've been in this business. You've been in, in learning and development and leadership development and coaching. And so you've really seen trends and you've seen where things have gone. So it was nerve wracking for me, not going to lie. So it's like, it was, it was sort of like the, the first big test, like, will people get what I'm trying to say? So needless to say, when I got your reply, like, yes, I'd love to. I was like, oh. Okay, one gate through. <laughs> um, well, I think, but I think that word, I know for me, when I said that, you know, if you'd, if you'd reached out to me two years ago to run for the hills, I think partly I had a reaction to it when I started seeing the word trauma-informed leadership showing up in my LinkedIn feed. Yeah. I really started reacting to it because I felt at that time, so it's probably even longer than two years, probably three years ago. I just felt like, okay, what else do you want from me as a leader? You know, it's like, now I need to be trauma informed. Can you just back the flipping truck up a little bit? And (laughs) that was my inner reaction. And in fact, I had somebody in my Instagram feed that I was following on the time who had sent me a DM about, you know, jumping on a webinar that, that they were hosting about me. And, And it totally triggered me. And I said, you know, I don't think you know, as a leader, I need to be trauma-informed. Like this is pushing the boundaries of what we should be talking about in leadership. And I really had a reaction to it. And I think, you know, that's sort of the reality or the thing I've learned is whenever you have a big trigger or big reaction, those are probably places you need to go looking. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think I sat with that a while and I thought, well, what is it about that that triggers me so much? That's kind of interesting. So I think that's what my initial thought was. And I think that's why I'm so proud of you for writing this book, because I do think it 
demystifies it. It takes that stigma away from it. And I think it brings it into the context of what we all do deal with on a regular basis. So I think that's why it's just such important work that you've done. And I think it's such important work for all of us as leaders to start to lean into and get curious about. And that was what my intent was to invite people in to look at a new perspective. Because I hear you, it's like, gosh, as leaders, like, what more do I need to do now? Like, (laughs) It's like, you've got it coming, you know, from all directions. May I read a quote from your forward? Sure. I felt like, I was like, oh, she gets it. Like, I think I actually might've cried when I got it back from you for the first time, because it was really sort of validation to say, okay, I'm heading into a place where people can go and they're not going to be too afraid. But one of the things you wrote in your foreword, in Evolve, Carolyn Suarez debunks the idea that being trauma-informed means becoming a trauma therapist. Evolve provides an accessible primer on a difficult but important topic that will, at the very least, reframe your definition of trauma and at the best, inspire you to develop your leadership practice to even deeper levels. That Those were beautiful, Klein. I can't tell you how much when I read that, I was like, oh, I just suck into the coach. Well, I'm glad, but that's all very true. I mean, I think leadership, it's not an event. You don't go to a one-day workshop to become a leader. Leadership, if you choose to step into leadership, you're making a lifelong commitment to yourself to become the best version of yourself so that you can bring out the best version of other people. Can't bring out the best version of other people if you don't know how to do it for yourself first. So I think this isn't 101 leadership to me that you're doing. This is very much for people that are on that journey and are on that commitment to want to be the best that they can be. Because leadership is a privilege. It's a responsibility. It's this opportunity. I say to people in our groups all the time, I'll say, you can be, you will be that person that people are going to talk about years from now. And it's your choice. Do you want them to be saying, Oh my God, I worked for this total SOB once upon a time and I couldn't wait to get away from him or them. Or do you want to be the person that people say, I worked for this individual once and that individual changed my life. Yeah. That is what we get to do every day in leadership. I believe that in the performance management and all of the crazy, you know, day-to-day deliverables. But I think Bringing yourself and being on that journey to understand yourself more is so critical. And so I think this layer that you've brought in and that you're introducing people to is for those that are willing to go there. It's really powerful. So yeah. good for you. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, I know you've been in the space of leadership development for just a few years. <laughs> <laughs> what things have you seen evolve and why do you think that our world is ready for this, like in our corporate world in particular, is ready for this message or this conversation right now? Well, I think to understand where leadership's evolved too, you have to understand where it's come from. And I think when we go back into modern management leadership, it's really rooted in the military model, right? It's very hierarchical. It's very command and control. And I think that's been evolving. Like it started to shift into the late seventies and into the eighties. I think the evolution is people on your team and going, gosh, how do I deal with these difficult people Mm. on my team? And what do I have to do for give feedback and coaching and deliver, you know, messages and all of that type of thing to then the evolution of understanding that it's not just the people around you, but it is you as a leader. It is you as a leader who you have to start to understand because 
we all have biases. We all have triggers. We all have blind spots. We Nobody is immune to this stuff. It's yep. okay, right? We all have strengths and overuse strengths become liabilities. Like we all are wrestling with that. I think we're getting more and more to that. I think mm-hmm. more and more organizations have recognized the importance of investing, not just in what I would call shallow surface level development, like, you know, let's teach you a delegation course or give you some basic insight into who you are by having you do any one of the countless sort of personality tests out there or things like that. I think that stuff organizations are getting, for the most part, pretty good at. I think where it's going, though, and I think it's interesting, because I think we become very individualized. And I'm talking North America. I mean, I'm really mostly working in North American space. But there is more of an individualistic mindset within North America. So as leaders, we look at ourselves and making the best of being ourselves. And I had a client once say to me, I became so self-aware, I was self-indulgent. And mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting insight into it all is. that self-awareness. To me, this is where we need to go next is to move away from this model. Because this is where we're really cultivating this idea of the heroic leadership model, right? It's mm-hmm. like, let's make sure you are the best you can be. But the reality of leadership is where we are today. It is so flipping complex. And that was why I originally had the reaction about being trauma-informed because I thought, oh my gosh, you need to be digital. You need to be a great coach. You need to be really good with um, diversity, (laughs) equity, and inclusion. You you need to, and you need to be strategic, but you also need to be hands-on. And like, it doesn't stop. There is 5 million things coming at us all the time. And I think the reality is there is so much complexity. There is so much change ongoing basis happening in the world like COVID was just a leadership situation when you strip it all out that it's impossible for any leader to be everything to everyone all the time it's impossible it just is so we have to start shifting this narrative and instead start thinking about how can we collectively get better how can we move away from this isolating view of leadership like how can we actually kick those expressions like it's lonely at the top how can we start kicking them to the curb how can we start kicking to the curb this idea that we have high potentials and then we have low potentials and then we have mid potential like all of those kinds of things and instead say we have a collection of people with different talents and right the most out of everybody. And so I think the organization certainly that we work with and that where we're seeing the evolution of the conversation going are moving more towards this idea of finding pathways and bridges to increase collective insight and collective consciousness around how do we need to work best together. And we're starting to see this migration away from this more individualistic nature and you know like all these issues that we talk about in organizations loneliness mental health diversity equity inclusion belonging hey when you start making this a collective responsibility to fix and you help people understand their part that they can play in it you start actually moving on a lot of those systemic issues it's not a course Not a course on how to be a more inclusive leader. No, you need to be in situations where, frankly, you're forced to be a more inclusive leader. Yeah, and where you're forced to realize you don't have the right answer all the time. I'm with you a thousand percent, Glyne. You know, when you think of if we go back to even before the military and more in agrarian, like agricultural times, it was built around communities. 
you built around your community and you bartered your services back and forth. And so it's like anything, right? The pendulum has swung way too far the other way. And where I hope my work can inspire people is to really help them realize that their body is a leadership tool and that our nervous systems are always in communication with each other. It's under the Mm -hmm. radar, like we don't know what's going on, but when we're able to understand our own reactivity patterns, when we're able to understand, yeah, I'm here, I am doing things that let this person or these people know that I'm working with them, that I see them, I hear them, right? We'll call that connection. Those to me are two fundamental skill sets that one are not necessarily easy for everybody. Mm -hmm. And two, they can be learned. And three, I think that's, that's our only way to shift this pendulum away from the individualism and more towards Mm -hmm. collective is understanding how we interact together, right? Science 101. What are those like Mm -hmm. neutrons and protons? I'm probably saying the wrong, but like, how do we all like combine together? I think about work. It's so much like any relationship, right? Like I've thought for years and I've written about this off and on over the years, this idea that marriage takes commitment. You know, I always say I love my husband. I adore him. But if I focused on his weaknesses, his opportunity areas all the time. We would be divorced many times over. And I'm sure in his direction, absolutely. I think in work, it's not dissimilar, right? We have this work relationship and then work disappoints us. And then we can start then focusing on all the things that are wrong. You focus it collectively with the organization, with individuals on your team, peers, you have to work with boss relationship. And it's very easy to kind of make it everybody else. And, yeah. you. and so that's part of the journey for all of us is to look to say, what part of this do I own? What is my responsibility here? And I think that the tricky thing with, you know, the, the subject that you're unpacking is that there are so many automated patterns and there's things that get rewarded for an organization yes. that often feed into those patterns, right? And so they become very hard to break. And our belief system based on those experiences that we've had, it takes a lot to challenge those belief systems. So I think it's very complex. And I think that's why, you know, I think as leaders, we have to meet ourselves where we are. And I think it's about this ongoing journey of discovery and not just looking for the easy answer, you know? Sometimes we look for the easy solution and we get stuck. We don't continue to evolve. I think the the title of your book is just a great title. And the work that you're doing is just great because it's about yeah. an evolution. It oh. is. Yeah, it really is. I'm curious in with your clients, because I know you do a lot of fantastic leadership programs. How are people finding the time and space to do this self-awareness work, to dig into this type of, because this is like, this is a deep topic. It's not just, you know, like you said, a little checkbox. Anything, any insight you can share around that, how people are finding the space or time to work through this kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I mean, I think when I think about our programming, so we are a coaching company. And so I think with coaching, if you think why is coaching exploded since I got into the coaching space in like early 2000s, right? So it's been 20 some odd years and it's really taken off and it's taken off because 
people suddenly were forced into reflection time, Mm. right? And they're busy, busy, busy. And then, you know, you get an hour with them as a coach and you've carved this little protective bubble where we can actually get out of the absolute chaos of the day and think clearly and really step back and think clearly. I think we do not have time to think in our organizations. So when I think, when people ask me the question about our programming, because we take such an anchored coaching approach, even though we work with groups and teams, it's not hard to get them to carve times out because there's so much benefit for them in doing that. If I look at the training and development space generally, learning and development has a bias towards content. Like we feel Mm. like giving people more content. And I think there's lots of content out there. I think if you want to learn how to do something, you could probably Google just about anything. And Coursera has just everything. And YouTube. (laughs) And YouTube, exactly. Like, so it's not really about that. What is it about? I think it's about figuring out how to make those ideas work in your world, in your context, in the reality of your situation. And so it's this balance that we need to be bringing in for people. And again, we tend to work with leaders who are not super new in their careers, but are more kind of that director, VP, senior level. Yeah. They've got a lot of knowledge and wisdom already. All like a ton of it. I think when you start to partner up, like, deeper self-insight. So choosing tools and things, we definitely do use assessments. I'm a big fan of assessments, but I'm a big fan of actionable assessments. Yes. Anything to just get insight. But I think for a lot of us, so we get told, I, I joke around, I have a few clients that like to use things like DISC or Colors or Myers-Briggs yeah. or those sorts of tools. And there's nothing wrong with them inherently. I mean, they're great for us. I, I think of them as starter tools. Yeah. They start you on your journey. But I think we need to go deeper than that. And I think that that is part of the commitment to ongoing work. And you'll always learn a little something. But as somebody who's done probably just about every assessment under the sun, I can say, I have the same three or four theme patterns that run all the way through. So that's really what I have to figure out now. Yeah, It's not like you can serve it up to me with a different color or a different letter or a different whatever. But It's what's going on underneath that. And I think once you start going down this path and you're committed to that curiosity about yourself and and that purpose of wanting to make a bigger impact with your teams and the community around you, I don't feel like we ever have to convince people to be in our programs because we start with that insight and that intentionality, right? I think that's why we're seeing though a lot of what I would describe as more traditional approaches to leadership development faltering, Right. right? I think that's why we're seeing people really moving away from what I would describe as just the more traditional one and two day offsites or these, yep. the one that I love is the approaches where we'll take a t- the busiest people in the organization and we put them on a special project as a leadership development program. Yeah. Like- bonded onto this project, but they still have to do their day job. I have a couple of clients that have those kinds of programs and they'll say to me, my day job's busy enough. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't need that side hustle to, as part of my leadership development. I think we just have to continuously be figuring out how do you incorporate it into the work that people are already doing? Exactly like that. And I remember back in like the 
early 2000s, maybe it was even the 2010s, no, probably early 2000s, you know, when you do your development plan and it was the 60, 20, 10 yeah, yeah. and the on the yeah, job 70, piece, 70, 20, 10, sorry, yeah, 70, 20, yeah, 10, yeah. yeah. And that 70% being on the job. I mean, there's so much to say for that in just creating that little bit of space for yourself yeah. and to do it with someone else obviously makes it more impactful to do it with somebody else. I, I think leaning into too, like the experience around you, like I think even 70, 20, 10, you know, the, the view on that is 10% is coaching. And that's sort of this idea that you're off with a coach, like this one-to-one yeah. type. When you look at the way they break it down and I kind of feel like, what if it was just all these things all the time? Exactly. Like the solution where it was actually hitting 70, 20, 10 all the time, just by the way you do the work you do, right? Yeah. Leadership development is actually an organizational effectiveness or organizational design, OE, OD. It's, that's actually what leadership development is. It's a systemic a solution. Yep. It is not a learning event. And I think too often, it's interesting being on the outside and working with different clients. You'll have the OD department, but then you have a leadership department, or there's just like a whole opportunity within the talent space to move away from this very siloing of um, roles and think more holistically about how you, when you support leaders effectively, you're shifting culture, you're got implications around succession. You've got, there's so many, there's so well, many tentacles. It comes back to what we were saying before, this whole notion of individual versus collective. And so when you look at the organization as a whole and how that all blends together, and that leads me into another theme that I wanted to ask you about in the book. So I talked about centers of intelligence in the book as a way, and that's how I learned what trauma was because my body center of intelligence was there. I wasn't listening to it. And so we hear a lot about our head center, our heart center, our hand center. So head, heart, and hand. And so this notion of integration, or like Brene Brown calls it wholeheartedness or, or integration, um, but we hear this notion of being integrated or attuned. Mm -hmm. We cannot do those things. We can't tap into the wisdom of our cognitive brain, which is very valued in organizations, or the wisdom of that relational ability, which is our heart. And then there's, you know, this wisdom of our body, which again is like the, our ability to take in stimulus around us that is going to be impacted by past events in our life. We're going to have sensations and things in our body that, that tell us or enter in intuition here a little bit as well. In my own experience as a leader, when those are all treated as separate, which I think they have been, mm -hmm. it is really hard to manage through the complexity, to lead through these DEI conversations and really, truly go in open-hearted and not get defensive. So I'm curious your thought, this notion of three centers of intelligence and maybe anything you've learned about yourself. I think it's really true what you say. And I'm a head person. And I think for me, being in tune to my feelings, to my emotions, to, and certainly my body. I mean, I burnt out sometimes. I, I was that person who internalized stress to the nth degree. So it would yeah. come out of my body, rashes, you mm. know, scratchy palms, trembling eyes, like yeah. it was really all kind of eye twitches. I think that with 
organizations. And I think it's interesting, right? Because I think about what gets rewarded and some of us can really suck it up and might make our way through the organization because of, again, the kind of the internalized narratives that we have about what we need to be doing and how we need to be showing up. And that's the stuff that's very much on autopilot. Like I think that when you're on autopilot like that, you're sitting very strongly in your biases. You really think the world sees the world the way it is. And I think for me, I have a lot of energy drives or whatever it might be that fit very well in corporate. I'm competitive. I don't mind the gameplay that goes on. I got stuff done in a very rapid way. I was very good at relationships and building those relationships and alliances. And so there were certain organizations where that served me very, very well. And I was rewarded as a result. So why would I look in the other areas? And so the the burnout stuff and the stress stuff, I just used to shove under the carpet. Right. And, I, and I think I just used to think that that was just the way it is because nobody talks about that. Right. No, you don't talk about that kind of thing. It's, it is those mantras, like never let them see you sweat. Like we have all of these things about like as leaders, like, well, you can't let your team know you're struggling and you can't do this and you can't do that. And I think as women too, like I'll throw the women card in there, which I don't really love doing, but I think as a woman, you feel that pressure even more so. You know, like you're not supposed to show emotion. You're not supposed to do any number of things. You almost have to hit your own personal walls to realize that this isn't working. I think with age comes a lot of wisdom. If I think about, I think careers go through stages. Yeah. And I think my early stage of my career, I was just really driven by fear. I mean, yeah, the inner critic was heavy. I totally used to feel like I had to justify my existence all the time. And so I worked harder. I put in extra hours. I pushed myself. I did all of those things. And I was rewarded for that. I was promoted quickly. I was hired into jobs I wanted. I, I had very few career disappointments in my early stage. And then I always can tell when people are struggling in their early thirties, because I I remember the experience for me, I was 33 and I was at this point where I I suddenly had this massive career crisis. I was a managing partner. I had great salary. I had a lot of positional influence and power. I had things that on paper, people would be like, wow, you've made it. Like look at you, 33 year old person. And I can remember talking to a colleague and who was in her 50s and I remember probably doing some big verbal vomit about how <laughs> and she said you know how old are you and I said I'm 33 she goes well you're in your Christ year and I'd never heard that expression before oh wow I'm in my Christ year she said well Christ came out at 33 like this is a year of tumultuousness and and that moment I then started observing that in other people and I read more about the Christ year and all of this stuff and I think that that stage for me, I, I meet a lot of people in my coaching practice that sort of struggle with that. It's not a year, it's almost a decade for them. Yeah. That they're struggling, struggling. Whereas for me, it started to really put me on the path of saying, okay, I've been really wide in my career. I've been trying a whole bunch of things. I've been jumping around all over the place. I've been trying to figure out what I want to do. Now I'm actually going to start to get courageous and brave. And I'm going to start to put some stakes in the sand around what I want to do and what I'm going to let go of and who I am and what works for me and what's important. And I had a bunch of missteps, Yeah, but ultimately that's what got me 
the end of my 30s to launch, you know, the roundtable. And I think then, you know, the 40s was another stage for me. I'm now in my 50s and it's a different stage. And I can look back at where I was. I look back at that 33-year-old and I think, oh my gosh, like the level of pressure you put on yourself, the stories you were telling yourself. And so much of that, I think, is just the conditioning that we're in in our society. We're in a very deep conditioning around performance and productivity. ambition. Yes, all of those things, right? And so now when I work with leaders that are on that journey who are used to be when I started the round table, people were closer to my age. Now I'm getting yeah. older, they're all still sitting in their, you know, 30s and 40s. You just see it through a different lens. I think for me, I was grateful that I had found myself in a leadership consultancy at the age I was at because I felt like it really fast-tracked me into this journey that I've been on for the last 20 some odd years. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that for me is one of my missions with the people that we work with is on an individual level, I want to help them get there faster because there's nothing worse than sort of being right. at the latter stage of your career, miserable and not really understanding why you're why miserable. you're there. Yeah. And and I'm going to guess too, like, you know, for some people, uh, children fall into those thirties, those years in our thirties as well. And so <laughs> I love what you said there too, about, you know, trying out a lot of different things and then realizing, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put some boundaries in place. Yeah. You know, for me, what resonated when you said that is like, I sucked at boundaries. I thought it was good. And I mean, it looked like I had boundaries on the outside, but inside there's a lot of mental and emotional gymnastics going on. Trying or, to navigate. By fear because it's like, well, if I tell my boss that I don't want that promotion, because I don't think it plays to my strengths. Yeah. Am I going to put my career at risk? Am I never going to have another opportunity again? Yep. And I think those conversations, which I got to the point that I had no choice but to have them. Mm. And what happened after having them, and I think this is the thing with fear, right? And I see it all the time when people are making that 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 really big, hairy kind of leap into something else is that we get so fixated on what we have the potential of losing. Yes. It's really hard to go to what's on the other side that could be positive. Yeah. Right. And I think, but once you've leaned into the fear, that woman's expression, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yep. I think if you can do that for yourself, for good or for bad, you are going to come out stronger and wiser and more resilient and with a deeper understanding. And speaking from my own personal experience, I will tell you that my worst case scenarios that I used to enact in my brain have never happened. Yep. Never, ever. I think though, you know, so I'm not encouraging people who are listening to go and do radical, crazy things, but I do think if you know yourself, the the more you know about yourself, that's why doing this inner work is so important. The more confident you can feel that even in the uncertainty, you're going to land. Okay. If you haven't done that other work, I would say you do some more of that work first to make sure that what you're doing is really what you want to be doing. Yeah. But I think when uh, my own experience with just taking those big leaps and I've done some big ones, it's not been smooth. It's not been easy. Yep. The stress and the pressures and the things that have been on the other side of it have been way different than, than being, you know, in a role or in a job or in a situation where it's not aligned with eating your soul away. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring this all around full circle. 
I mean, because that's essentially what I'm trying to get through in this book is that being trauma informed is learning to lean into that fear and understand some things about yourself that might be a little bit hard to understand, but when you can understand them, it's going to allow you to show up, dare I use that word authentic, in a more authentic way, people can see your gifts and talents. That's essentially the safety, creating safety for others, doing it consistently and acting authentically. That Those are really the core foundations of which I've built my own model on. And that's what trauma-informed leadership is. We don't need to know people's trauma. We don't need to compare it. We don't need to do anything with it, but know that trauma is in really simple terms, an emotional wound that mm-hmm. we've buried into our body. And maybe it would help listeners who are like, I don't get the connection here. I'm going to give you a very specific example from my own life where I had unrecognized trauma, but it sh- it's shown up in my leadership since I've been leading. Yeah. And so I used to call myself a control freak. I'd mm-hmm. say, oh, I'm just a control freak. I'm a control freak and I like things. And people who've worked with me, would probably say about me, I have a very high standard. I am very straightforward in giving feedback with people about whether you've met that standard or not. And I'm always pushing for better. And that gets rewarded, right? Like I'm delivering results. I care about my team. We're doing it together, but it's not always comfortable, right? And so for me, digging into trauma and what had gone on in my childhood When I grew up, a father who was very domineering Mm. and very controlling, and we were not allowed to do, basically children should be seen and not heard. Yeah. So that was his generation. I didn't realize until going into therapy myself, and listen, I'm married uh, (laughs) Those who know me know that I'm married to a psychotherapist, so I've been getting three therapy (laughs) but... Enneagram fans out there, I'm an Enneagram seven and we resist therapy because we like to be on the positive side of things. And my whole view is really around saying, I don't need that. I know my childhood was difficult. I know all that stuff. I don't need to, you know, think about that. But over the course of the last couple of years, I've been recognizing, oh no, what you went through was kind of traumatic and you need to understand what the patterns are. That pattern and with my team what will happen for me from time to time with my team is that I will get frustrated because I'll feel like they're not stepping up as much as they could Mm. I'm really looking at like what are they working on what they and they should have been doing this and they should have been doing that it's not the nicest part of me and a lot of it is my own internal dialogue which is also the other challenge is that it's the stuff that's going on in our head. It's creating stress for us. We're stressed out. Yeah. And then we show up not in the best ways when we're under that stress with people. So I realized that one of the roles I played, I'm the oldest of four. And so because my dad was so volatile with my mother and all of us as kids, but I was the oldest, I managed to kind of create a buffer sometimes. And Mm. I was very hypervigilant to my dad's moods as a child, very hypervigilant. And so I would do what needed to be done to keep him calm. If it was a road trip, if we were going on vacation, I would take over navigating because my mother couldn't do it when I was nine years old. I would take over, you know, looking after my brothers because where my dad was at and that type of thing. And this hypervigilance, this need to be make sure everybody's taken care of and everybody's got what they need. But yep. then at the same time, resenting that, I didn't want to be doing that when I was nine years old. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that is the pattern that has come to me as a leader. So I'm hyper vigilant. How's everybody doing? What's going on? 
but then I resent having to do that. And so I will. So then it manifests for me at the end of the day when I come home and my husband said, what's for dinner? Why can't you, you decide what's for exactly. dinner? <laughs> yeah. why, why am I getting triggered over the question? What's for dinner? This is yeah. ridiculous. My brain has been on this hyper vigilance. How's everybody feeling? How's everybody doing? Are they hitting their things? Are they doing what they need to do? On and on and on. Right. The more you can start to understand that pattern, unpack that pattern, then what it's given me is freedom of choice. Now I have different choices and I have a different awareness. So when I'm in it, I can pull myself outside of myself and say, okay, wait a second. Yeah. What's happening here for you right now? What's really happening here for you right now? Because I think when we talk about it in a very sort of abstract level, it's sometimes hard to relate. And yet, you know, if you have a pattern that you're repeating, there's probably something, even if you had an amazing childhood, like it's not like we all have to have suffered big T trauma, right? All of us have had these little things along the way that affect us a lot, right? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that you said there, you talked about hypervigilance and hypervigilance for me, I didn't realize that that's how I was processing all of my emotional wounds and hypervigilance can be really, really rewarded. And there was a quote, it was in a tweet. It said, uh, she said, don't mistake empathy with hypervigilance. And that really gave me pause for thought. Yeah, that's good. I'm right. Um, I'm just putting that down. <laughs> yeah. And so again, if we come back to why now, why is this so important now? I think it's so important now because three years ago, our world changed overnight. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the systemic inequities, a lot of the shitty things that were happening in our world just got magnified. Mm-hmm. And I think we're past the point of being able to manage all of this in the old ways that we know how. And so I I don't think this is just going to be like a hot topic for, you know, a year or two. I think that there is a piece that our society, again, will circle back to shift from that individualistic mindset and recognize it's okay. You know, we do need to work with each other. We do need to rely on each other. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need to learn how to do it and to do it in an accountable fashion that's why I think, and why I'm so excited to, you know, to get this book into the world and be part of the conversation with many other folks. I think it's just so great. You've done this and, you know, shared a lot of your own journey. Cause I think the thing that I know just from the work that we do, when we bring groups of leaders together and peers is that there is something incredibly powerful in realizing that you're not alone. Yes. Not alone on this journey. And the things that you think are so unique to you, actually, everybody (laughs) around this table is struggling with, right? You don't have to be a hero, like, let's remove this isolation. And I think that that is what the last couple of years have done is it's given people more time to reflect and think. Yeah. And I think that's why more people are reassessing their relationship with work right now, which I don't think is a bad thing. It's been out of control for a long time. And I think there's a rebalancing that should happen and needs to happen. And the leaders that are equipped to navigate through those kinds of conversations are going to be the ones that will succeed in the long term here, because I think we're really seeing a shift in terms of what people are wanting to get from their work experience. It's really shifting. Yeah. 
Well, we could talk for hours. I think that's probably a good place to sort of round out this part of the conversation. Where could our listeners find you if they want to hear more about your programs at the Roundtable? Yeah, so our web address is goroundtable.com. So you can go there and find everything about our programs. You can certainly feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn if you'd like to connect on LinkedIn. We also have a corporate page there. That's where we're probably the most active. And we have a monthly newsletter that we send out that's just our views on different things, leadership that you can connect with us on that too. Fantastic. So those are good places. Yes. And you are active on LinkedIn. Lots of things to talk about, not shy <laughs> at all. When I do go on LinkedIn, you're definitely one of the ones that I, I like to go and see what's going on, what's rumbling through clients' mind. Um, <laughs> A lot of random rumbling. Yeah. So we'll make sure we have that in the show notes. Now to wrap up, I ask all my guests three questions because they are directly connected to the three principles of being an evolved leader. So y'all set for these three questions? Well, I think so. Let's see how we do. All right. All right. (laughs) So the first question is around self-awareness. I know you shared a little bit of a story, but I'm going to ask you if there's a specific time, a specific moment where just a whole lot of insight was fallen upon you and it was perhaps pretty uncomfortable, but really yielded a lot of insight. I've had so many of those moments. I think the thing for me that became very uncomfortable was when I was working at this consulting firm. And at the time I was the head of sales and I loved the firm, but I was so miserable. I was having panic attacks. I literally developed a perspiration issue where I was literally sweating through layers of my suits on an ongoing basis. And I couldn't understand why it was that moment where I I had the opportunity to do some reflection. I worked with a career coach Mm. as a result. And I had this big aha about my need for independence because I'd been in other roles before. It's not like it was my first leadership role. I'd had many other roles before, but I'd had bigger scope in previous roles. And it sort of sounds counterintuitive, but In previous roles, I'd been responsible for sales and delivery and marketing and the whole thing. Whereas in this firm, I was only responsible for sales. Okay. And so when I sat down with the assessor to kind of go through my results, one of the things he said to me was, you have a very high need for autonomy and independence. And when that penny dropped, I realized working between a head of marketing and a head of consulting with me as head of sales was actually creating just a lot of tension for me that I hadn't recognized before. And so that was what led to a conversation with my boss to say, I've had this revelation and I don't think there's anything you can do. Cause he kept trying to, it was like a shell game. He was trying to make me happy. Wanted to keep you, right? Yeah. He wanted to keep me. And and so I, I literally had to sit down with him and say, I realized that it's not the company. I love the company and I'd love to be able to stay here, but this autonomy thing is killing me. So that just opened up a whole different set of conversation and and ultimately is what resulted with me then taking on the role as a managing partner to being able to actually run a whole business, which was not even a role we had, wasn't a conversation that I ever thought he would entertain and yet was just a real career game changer for me. And so I think that was probably one of the biggest ones. And it's ultimately why I'm an entrepreneur now myself right. today. Yeah. Well, and you know what I love? Just one little piece. I don't always do this because I know there are answers. <laughs> what really resonates with me in that story is 
your awareness helped you understand where you were in a larger system and recognized, I don't have to be here. There's lots of other systems. There's lots of other setups that I can move to. And I don't want to get off. I know we could talk about that for a while, but you know, I think that is another piece of the power of self-awareness is recognizing that you can fit in, in other places. And that if you have to leave what you're currently in right now, doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean no, that you're not good. And I think it explains so many of my previous patterns. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I'm very grateful. I mean, the person I, you know, was reporting to at the time was a gentleman named Don McQuaig. He was the founder of MICA and I learned so much from him about being strengths-based and talent-centric in your conversations with people. And Mm -hmm. he was so fabulous at bringing out the best in the people that worked for him. And so I'm, I'm, I'm also very grateful that I had the opportunity to explore where I was at with somebody who would actually listen and not be closed-minded to what he had hired me for, and this is what we need you to do. And so there were so many multiple learnings on that, but it was hard for me. I mean, I was the income earner in my family and had been. So it was a lot of pressure and baggage around that for me. So yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Second one, what is a practice or ritual that keeps you in a calm, regulated state or returns you to one? Yeah. So a book that I have had been using for, I don't know how long it's been now. It's probably coming up on a decade is a book called the five minute journal. And Mm -hmm. the five minute journal is really a little mindfulness practice book. Are you reaching for yours over there, Carolyn? I'm reaching for mine, (laughs) the five minute journal. Yes. (laughs) Your five minute journal. And so, you know, it does a number of things, but one of the things that was really most powerful for me in the practices of the five minute journal is it, it has a piece that's around your affirmation. And, and the way I sort of take that is like, how do I want to show up today? How do I want to show up today? And I use I am statements when I write my affirmation. So I will write, you know, I am patient, I am loving, I am kind, whatever it needs to be, or I am focused, I am diligent, I am thorough, right? Because when I look at what's ahead in my day, I really have to center myself in how I want to be in that day. And so for me, that's a very grounding mindfulness practice. But also I would say, and this is a funny story, but I'm high independence as I've just kind of shared with everyone, which meant has meant that marriage has been a bit of a compromise for me and not always the most fun thing. I found that there was one stage with my marriage with my husband, you know, our daughter was younger and you know, just yipping at each other, you know, it, was yep. like, it wasn't pleasant. And, you know, the places you get into, and I started in the journal because my go-to and those people that know about relationship stuff is my go-to is contempt when I'm not happy. Mm. I have this tone of voice used to blame it on my father, but I need to own it myself is it's kind of the, like, what are you stupid tone yep. of voice? And it's terrible. I hear it. I dislike it. And my husband with all credit to him, he would call me out on it. He mm. called BS on me for talking to him in that way. But eye rolling, all of that stuff. And contempt is actually one of the number one predictors of divorce. And Mm, so to really think about how am I showing up here? And so for three months, every day, no matter the day, I started writing, I am patient, I am loving, I am kind. 
And we were about three months into me really every day grounding myself in those three messages. And my husband turned to me one day in the kitchen and he said, we were talking about something and he said, do you notice we're getting along much better? Like we're, mm. we're not yipping at each other much. much and of course me, cause I'm a low restraint. I'm like, yes. And you know what? Because my journal, because my husband's like, okay, the fact that you needed to write that down in your journal concerns me, but to me, that's the power of that. And how you do anything is how you do everything. So yeah, I talk to my husband like that. When I'm under stress, I will talk to my team like that. I will talk to vendors like that. It's not a good place for me to be. So if I know I'm having a very hectic day, if I know my battery's on low, if I know that I'm going to be dealing with a whole lot of stuff. I need to ground myself in that practice because my go-to under stress is to get very directive and very impatient. Yep. So it's not a good look. And you know, I haven't written in that for a while. I've got it close to me. I think I I sometimes think osmosis will make it come out, but I need to get back to it. Yeah. Okay. Last but not least, what is a song or genre of music that makes you feel connected to others or part of something bigger than yourself? Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) it is not my genre of music because anybody who knows me knows that heavy metal is my genre of music. And I think if you'd said to me, what was your theme song for the last few years? I would have had a very different response. Like, you know, Britney Spears work bitch was my (laughs) song for the last few years and not to go on a Maserati, but I was like, you want to keep the lights on going through COVID business? You better work. But I think the song that for me, every time I hear it, I just feel very connected to it. And I get, and I feel connected to a greater whole is kind of like, I'm laughing because I'm thinking Enneagram seven, of course, it's your song (laughs) by Great Big C. And it's when I'm up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's all about that optimism and that being that power of good. And just that, I think it's very easy and particularly today in the world we're living in to feel very defeated by everything that's going on. And that for me reminds me always that there's always so much more good in the world than there is yeah. that. And that I have a responsibility to be a part of that to too. Of it, I love yeah. that song. And it's just, yeah, it is. It's so, and it's Canadian. Canadian. Yes. yes so yay, go Canadian. <laughs> Glenn, as always, I love our conversations. They fill my heart. They fill my soul. And yeah, you've just, you've been a real inspiration. I remember it was probably about six, five or six years ago when we first had met and, and you, there was just something you said to me that made me think I can do this on my own. Like there's something bigger there for me. So whatever you saw back then, thank you. Cause I feel like it's <laughs> starting to flourish and come out a little bit. So I'm really grateful okay. that you've come into my world. So shout out to Fiona Ellis for that one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thanks. All right. <laughs> all right. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into this episode. We'll have all the show notes there for you. And don't forget, Evolve the Path to Trauma-Informed Leadership is on sale April 25th. You can get it at Amazon and other bookstores soon, but we'll start off with Amazon. Thanks again, Glenn. Oh, pleasure. Well, there's never a shortage of words when Glenn and I start talking about leadership in particular. It really was a pleasure having her on the show today and to hear her perspective on trauma-informed leadership. As you heard, she's been in this space for a long time and having her support for my work has meant an awful lot. 
and has really given me the confidence that Evolve, the book that I've written, has been done in a safe, responsible, and approachable way. I hope that you are intrigued to buy the book. You right now can find it on Amazon on launch day, and we are working to get it available in other outlets as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of Evolve. And if you're liking what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast.